over in the Samuel chapter uh, 19, and hopefully we can kind of chive through a couple of chapters this morning. We are picking up steam to this point. Saul is still the king. Jonathan, the heir to the throne, uh, Prince Jonathan, if we can put it that way, and uh, Jonathan and David are building a relationship. Chapter 18, which we covered last year, is the equivalent of probably about two to four years in the life of David. Um, he is not yet and, and this is more of a guess than, than a, a matter of fact, but it's my guess that David is not yet 20 years old. He probably slew Goliath when he was 14, 15 years old. Um, and so th this is kind of a four to a two to four, maybe five year gap. And uh, David, everywhere he is placed at a disadvantage, God blesses him and preserves him and elevates him. Jonathan loves it. Jonathan uh, Saul's oldest son is so excited to see his friend advance, um, and uh, and and they become more like brothers than than they do friends. And Saul, King Saul, becomes more and more paranoid, more and more jealous of the advantages clearly David is receiving. So, First Samuel chapter nineteen, verse one says, "Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants." to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on here. Um, I, I, have, I have doubts that Saul came straight out and was like, Let's, uh, let's kill David. And he pulls his son Jonathan in uh, and goes, we're going to kill him. Does that sound like a fair plan? I, I would guess that it, it went more like Saul said, look, um, David, David always likes to walk down this particular hallway. He likes going down to the Arby's. That's his favorite lunch. They have a mean brisket down there, brisket sandwich. And let's just make sure that maybe the light fixture falls on his head. I, I don't know whether it was accidental or there was going to be an assassination attempt. I'm not certain, but something tells me because Saul and Jonathan talked about it, it was less stab him in the back with a knife. But that's an opinion-based statement. Nevertheless, um, Saul and Jonathan picks up on what's going on, and he wants to warn David. And he says in verse 3, uh, or verse 2, he says, uh, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. So there must have been something, you know, we're going to kill him and make it look like a car accident kind of thing. I, I don't know, but it, something tells me that's kind of where it's at. Verse 3 says, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with him, with my father, about you. And if I find out anything, then I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck the Philistine, that would be Goliath, the Lord, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting to David to death without a cause? He says, so this is not really a fair shake for David. Uh, God's clearly blessing him, so let's not, uh, let's not plan the demise of our good friend David. Verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. I think what we're witnessing here is a further down spiral of this, and I'm very careful not to put a mental health, specific mental health label on him, but there is, there is a, a tendency towards maybe a bipolar understanding of, of, of Saul. Uh, I wouldn't say schizophrenia, but uh, I don't know, maybe a, a, a divinely authored form of dementia or some type of confusion because Saul vacillates wildly at times. He will go from literally breathing death threats to being repentant and want to get right with the person he's trying to kill. And it happens so fast, it's like, mm, something ain't right with you, you know? So so that's kind of where, good morning. Uh, they already have a donuts out? That's fantastic. Uh, we'll get out early so everybody can get a donut. Um, 
But so, so Saul is beginning this, this down spiral, uh, I would say a death spiral, into like this confusing state, but somehow he could be reasoned with at some point. And Jonathan, he's, he's, he's a very wildly popular uh, warrior, wildly popular crown prince, and, and he speaks reason to his father, and his father listened. Verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As Yahweh lives, David will not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and John, Jonathan told him all of these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and David was in Saul's presence as formerly. So they make some peace, they make some amends, they get back together, and like, okay, we can go about doing our, our normal course of uh, killing Philistines and uh, you know uh, marrying off king's daughters, all the things that were happening in chapter 18. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. This is an incredible turn of, of events because the last time we really saw a specific battle, you had Philistines and the Hebrews, the Israelites, squared up over a valley. Goliath comes out and swears he's going to kill them, and the Hebrews, as, as one man, are terrified. Now you have a completely different thing. The Philistines and the Hebrews, the Israelites, square up together, and every time they go out to battle, David just kicks Fanny. I mean, he just wipes them out. And uh, it's quite the turn of events. The Philistine, this warrior tribe, this warrior clan, is now on the run from what five to ten years ago were a bunch of farmers carrying pitchforks and torches and, and, uh, and pocket knives into battle. And, and now you see this great warrior, future warrior king coming into play with David. Verse 9, Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. So David still has this musical job he still does. It's maybe an, an additional duty at this point. Um, you know, go out and kill all the Philistines, and you're my son-in-law. But man, you sure do may play a mean harmonica, right? So or a harp, or whatever it is. Uh, verse 9 is, we talked a little bit about this last week. It's a little curious. It says, the Lord sent an evil spirit. Um, well, there's some other parts of Scripture that kind of lean us towards this idea that, uh, that God is sitting in the throne room. Everybody works for God. Everybody. Even the enemy, right? The, the devil, you've heard this before, hopefully, in, in good uh, theology, is if, if something from the enemy strikes you, it had to pass through God's permissive hand. The, the devil can't do anything to God's children without permission. And sometimes the Lord says, all right, we're going to push Gary a little bit in this area, uh, and, and so I'm going to use all those things at my disposal. Sometimes he may use good things and push him, and sometimes he has at his disposal these other uh, options. And this evil spirit wants to do evil, God says, well, my plan is to get Saul out of the way, so uh, I, uh, I'm not the author of evil things, but go and, do, go and do your evil and see what comes of it. And, and so it was that David was playing his hand, was playing the heart with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, but David slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he, struck, he stuck the spear in the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. We see this spear and Saul happening a lot. We're going to see it pick up even more in the next couple chapters. It could be that the spear has become kind of, uh, when we think of like a king's scepter uh, or, or a king with a crown, perhaps this spear is somewhat of the, the seat of his authority, right? He who holds the spear of Israel um, is, is king. And so everywhere we see David uh, or Saul mentioned, it seems he has this spear in his hand. So this may be some symbol of his, his uh, kingly spirit, his kingly uh, authority. Uh, but David gets away. Man, he's a spry fella, right? He gets all his PT tests knocked out. He's, he scores 100. He's, he's, really, he's a good athlete, and uh, he sees it coming, and uh, it sticks in the wall, and David runs out the door. And Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, or Michael, David's wife, and they're, they're recently married, right? 
He went out and killed 200 Philistines, brought back their four skins in a bag, says, this is the dowry, I'll pay for this woman. And everybody's like, okay, uh, thanks, David, that's pretty cool. Um, and Michael is in David's bed as his wife, and she hears about, about this plot, that they're going to kill David. And, uh, and so this, something very interesting happens here. Michael, David's wife, said to him, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. So she hears of this internal gossip there in the palace. She is, in fact, the king's daughter, um, and people talk to her, and she has found out that Saul is going to kill David, and, uh, and she, 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 narks, she narks King Saul out and slips David out by night. Apparently they were watching the front of the house, and they were going to wait for David to come out, and they were going to kill him in the morning. Uh, but she warns him, and he gets out of town. Uh, verse 13, this is a curious passage. I got real, no real good explanation, but it's in the Bible, so let's deal with it. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed, put a quilt of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with cloth. Uh, so she, five-foot-four-looking idol. Don't know what this is. Uh, there are some commentaries who uh, lead us to think that perhaps in his migration away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, he had begun to absorb some of the other um, local deities, perhaps of the Philistines or other Canaanites in the area. And, uh, and so maybe that was in, in the king's palace household. There's no real good explanation why it's in David's house, Right? other than the fact that there are things in my house that apart from having a woman in my house would not be there, okay? Maybe being the daughter of Saul, she brought in some of the, you know, some of the stuff from her house and put it in there and kind of churched it up a little bit uh, in the way woman did up, feminized it a bit, and perhaps the, 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 the idol was there and David's like, you know, this, it's not really my jam, but I don't know if it's worth the argument. Right? I don't know if you gentlemen have ever had that before. Uh, you know, sometimes you just got to let it, let it go. Uh, and perhaps this is, this is one of those things David's like, I'm not, okay, just, I don't care. Just put it in the corner. We'll put like a hat on it or something. We'll hang our coats. I don't care. Uh, we'll treat it like the treadmill. Okay, just hang your clothes on it. And uh, but anyway, why would she put it in the bed? I don't know. Maybe, maybe the plot was they're going to sneak in, you know, the ninjas are going to come in at night, the special forces, and, uh, and whack, it, whack him up with their swords. Nevertheless, she puts the idol down as she, she rolls up um, a goat hair blanket, which should tell you something about David's hair, right? A little, little, little nappy, maybe? And puts it at the head, puts a sheet over it like every eight-year-old boy has done to trick his parents <laughs> into thinking he's in the bed. And, and they come in at length. So verse, uh, verse 14, Saul sent messengers to take David because, man, now it's, it's 9 o'clock. You've missed breakfast. You've missed roll call. Um, you've missed the staff meeting. And uh, go get him. And, uh, and Saul sent messengers to take David. And Michael said, oh, he's sick. He's got the COVID. It's probably Omicron. Just a couple days. You'll be good. And Saul sent messengers to see David. I says, mm -mm, no, I, I want a negative test. I want to see it. Uh, I need to see the, the doctor's excuse. He says, bring him to me on his bed if you've got to. David's going to be before me today that I may put him to death. And when the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, his daughter, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? So she just lied, right? She, she loves him. She don't want him to die. And uh, she, she's like, he said he's going to kill me. So I told him, I, you know, all right, you can leave, but just don't kill me. So that was the excuse. Verse 18. It says, now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now, who's Samuel? Who's Samuel? All right, the retired prophet, okay? After he told Saul, you're out as king, and God's going to replace you. It broke Samuel's heart, and he's like, you know what? You got a king now. You do kingly stuff. I'm going to retire to Ramah, like the Boca Raton of, uh, of Israel, I guess. He goes back home, 
and he kind of semi-retires. But like any pastor worth his salt, I've never met one that was able to walk away from ministry cold. Uh, apparently, Samuel has started, I guess what we would call like a monastery, if you will, except for it's a weird monastery. We'll see that in just a second. Uh, David fled in verse 18, came to Samuel at Ramah, and told Samuel all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed at Noah. Uh, Noah is, is the name probably of like the, the seminary. Like Samuel has started a school for prophets. He's like, you know what? We can't trust the priesthood anymore. They don't seem to be real honest. Uh, they don't seem to be moving in the right direction. And so we're going to start a school for prophets. And basically Samuel started a seminary out in his backyard and uh, created like this, uh, I don't know, not a convent, but this monastery where the, the men could come and be trained, perhaps even women. We had female prophetesses as well. Uh, so he's training prophets there in his hometown, and, uh, and that's where David flees to, hoping, I, I'm guessing, that Saul would respect at least those spiritual boundaries and not come and try to kill David. And But verse 8, 19, it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at the seminary at Noah in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David, but when they, when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So get this picture in your mind. Uh, this is such a, is such a cool picture in my, in my brain. Um, so they know that, that Saul's going to come with the assassin squad to take David away. And so Samuel gets up his preacher boys and says, all right, everybody circle up, circle up, circle up. All right, we're just going to start praying to God. All right, and God's spirit is going to fall on us, and we're just going to begin to speak truth. And uh, in this day and age, the prophets were, were, were mm, they're curious. Can I put it that way? Uh, they're curious. Uh, weird haircuts, um, uh, were prone to walk around with limited clothes, all right? Uh, mm-hmm, okay. And they would walk around and they would just prophesy, uh, which. Shouldn't surprise us too much. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you can read um, where the prophet uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and, uh, and, and, um, and Jeremiah, God called them to do some pretty curious things as they prophesied. And one, one prophet's case, uh, he was told to lay on his side for, for like 200 and something days, and he had to cook his food over human dung. And the prophet was like, uh, how about I cook my food over over donkey dung could we could we like compromise on that and god's like yeah that's fine um that that's weird that's in the bible you can look it up old testament and uh so god calls his prophets to do some weird things to demonstrate how displeased god is with his people so weird prophet activity is not necessarily out of context for this day and age so samuel gets up Maybe he had a pulpit. We don't know. And he's presiding over the prophets, and he's prophesying. And all these wild-eyed, wild-haired, half-naked men are prophesying in this big open space. And in come Saul's messengers, his guards, his bodyguards, to come get David. And they walk into the property, the boundaries of the property, and they start, the Spirit of God hits them. And they take off their clothes and start prophesying. And Saul's like, well, that's, that's weird. Send in, send in a better team. <laughs> send in a better team. And so they do. Uh, verse 22, uh, or, or verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers a third time. They also prophesied. So this is hilarious to me because God... Uh, Samuel is trying to protect David in the way he understands to protect David, which is just through raw faith power. And every time someone comes close to, to Samuel to get David, the Spirit of God just flings on them, and they take off their clothes, lie in the dirt all day, praying and prophesying. Weird stuff. Am I there yet? All right, okay. I'll just look at your face and trust you think it's weird. So De Saul's like, you know what? 
You don't send a boy to do a man's job. If you want something done right, you do it yourself. Verse 22, he himself went to Ramah, and he came as far as the large well that is in Saku, and he asked and said, where is Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they're at the seminary at Ramah, at Noath. And Saul proceeded there to Noath in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Noath in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and he lay down naked all day and all that night. That'll give you some curious tan lines, okay? Uh, weird yet? Yeah. And, and people, now notice what they say. Therefore, the population said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, how do we reconcile this, th this statement? Well, you got to read it with a good bit of sarcasm, I think. Uh, they weren't going, oh, wow, King Saul, he's now, he's now a born-again evangelical preacher. No, it's the people outside the seminary going, Saul's nutty. What? What's wrong with this guy? Is, is he also a prophet now? As one of them cuts their eyes towards their wife and go, you see this? Don't look. But do you see this? And they're like, is Saul, is Saul a prophet now too? Um, and while all this is going on, right? While, while Saul is slain in the spirit, so to speak, laid out, stark naked, prophesying before the Lord, laying in the sun all day and in the moonlight all night long, David said, this would be a good time for me to bounce. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and he said to Jonathan. So he goes back to the palace, right? Why does he feel comfortable doing that? Yeah, Saul's back, Saul's back in a compromising situation at the seminary. Uh, so he's back, he's back there, and he runs to Jonathan, who he's just a few days before had this conversation with, going, your dad wants to, to, to kill me. And he's like, I'll, I'll smooth this out. He comes back to Jonathan, his best friend, and goes, bro, whatever you did, didn't keep. You, tell, me, tell me how to fix this. David is still quite a young man. He's a, he's a battle-hardened warrior, but he's still in his late teens, early 20s. Jonathan is likely in his late 20s, early 30s. And in this culture, that's, that's, that's a grown man, for a real grown man. And, uh, and so he goes back to Jonathan, his best friend, his brother-in-arms, and his mentor, and he says, what do I do now? Like, what, what do I do? And he, he says this in verse 1, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What, what, what sin have I committed against your dad and your family? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? I, I get it, right? Like, I know I'm popular. I don't, I don't mean to be. I mean, I'm a good-looking guy. I understand that. I, I'm not as tall as Saul. But what have I done to, to, to steal the king's thunder? What have I done? Verse 2, he said to him, Jonathan said to David, Far from it, you shall not die. Jonathan here makes a decision. He has to decide between family connections and friend connections. And Jonathan may be one of the most clear-eyed, clear-headed characters in the Old Testament. He goes, you know what? This is going to be a tough call, but it's mine, and I'm going to make it. I'm going to follow God's servant, even if it means going against my father. Okay? I'm not going to ask this question, but I'll say this. We all, as adults, go through that period where we've, handed, we, we've been handed kind of an adult life. We got married. We're starting a family. But our parents still have a lot of influence over our decisions, and they, they add a lot of wisdom to us. But there comes a time, there, sometimes it's one moment, um, uh, where you realize, I'm no longer my, my mama's baby. I, she'll always be my mama. My dad's always going to be my dad. But my, I'm my own person now. I think we're seeing this, this nexus event for Jonathan right here in chapter 20. Um, 
Anyway, he said, Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. He still doesn't understand it. He says, I'm going to go to bat for you. I'm going to take care. You are not going to die. But I'm going to make sure that all the rumors that I'm hearing, I'm going to hear it straight from dad's mouth, and then I'll know. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well what I have, that I have found favor in your sight. And he said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. So Jonathan is kind of in this position where he's like, mm, I, I just don't see Dad doing this, but if you say it, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to vet this out. Um, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. He said, I'm on your side. I got your back, even if it costs me life and limb. So David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. So we don't know exactly what new moon we're talking about. This, uh, the Jewish calendar is a 10-month calendar, has 30 days. Every month has 30 days, and every year has 10 months, um, which may account in some small measure why, like in the Old Testament in Genesis, where we're told these, that these men lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, well, we have a 12-month year. We tend to think of years a little bit longer. Uh, you start factoring that in. It may not have been as exaggerated as we, we think. They still, the, the older generation of Genesis definitely lived well into their five, 600 years for some of them. Uh, but like even, uh, the, the time doesn't always match up is what I'm trying to get at. Um, but this new moon, this was perhaps, uh, you know, the full moon, and this was a celebration, and it was kind of maybe like their quarterly staff meeting. And so wherever you are, when the new moon comes up, kind of like all of the nights of the round table, you come in, you sit around the king's table, we all stare at each other, and we all do a little uh, uh, roll call, and I know, okay, everyone's in their spot. And he says, so we know the new moon's coming up. I'm not going to be there. So, uh, Jonathan, my seat, David's seat, will be empty. And, uh, and so he goes on to say this, verse 6, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for his whole family. He says, they, they must be like having a, a birthday party. And it was, dad's, it was dad's birthday, and I had to go back and do that. Um, if he says, that's fine, it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is angry, know that he has decided on evil for me. Therefore, dear kindly with your servant, for if you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, if you're giving me your word... But if there is sin in me, if there is iniquity in me, David, put me to death right here yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, David, then, I, uh, then would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out in the field. So they're having this conversation, right? Saul's back laying naked, you know, at the seminary. Uh, and Jonathan and David are having this kind of uh, heated but whispered, hushed conversation. And Jonathan realizes <clears throat> palace walls have ears. And he says, hey, let, let's walk out to Shiloh Park, right? Let's walk out in the outfield where we can, we can tell that nobody's around. Let's carry this conversation off and a little more privacy. So they do. He says, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out to the field. And Jonathan said to David that Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be a witness to us. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, he says, give me a day or two. Dad's going to come out of this funk over at the seminary. He'll put his clothes on. He'll come back. He, we know him. He does these weird things. Uh, give me a day or two. If there is a good feeling towards David, shall I not then send to you and make it known. If it pleases my father to do you harm, if he wants to hurt you, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with me. If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? Now, let's break this down. This is it. This is a big thing for Jonathan. He's saying to David, we're going to set this up. 
I'm going to go out. I'm going to press dad for all that. He, I'm going to, I'm full court press. I'm going to find out his intentions. I'll, I will, I will get into a fist fight with him if I have to. I'm going to know whether he wants you dead or he's just being crazy. But if I do this and he wants you dead, he may kill me. And I've got a family to take care of, David. If I take care of you, you've got a promise to take care of my family. And that you, when you become king, because Jonathan knows David is on the, on the horizon is David as a king. He says, when you become king, you've got to promise me you're not going to do what, what new kings do. And that's to wipe out the family of the, the predecessor. Okay? He says, when you get to where you're going, you've got to promise me you're going to take care of my family. Will you take care of my wife? Will you take care of my kids? Promise me. Okay? So that's what verse 14 is all about. He says, if I'm still alive, if, if, if King Saul doesn't kill me, and I'll let you know that, that death is on the horizon. Just know that I'm putting my life on the line. Promise me you'll take care of my family. And verse 15, that you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require of the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him because he loved him as he loved his own life. So this is kind of a real raw moment. They're not crying yet, but they will in a minute, literally. Verse 18, then Jonathan said uh, to David, tomorrow, here's the plan. Tomorrow is the new moon, and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. It's going to be pretty, pretty plain. You know, there's, there's five seats at the head table, and one of them's going to be empty, and it's going to be you. And, uh, and so, uh, verse 19, when, when you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself um, on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone of Ezel. So I think this is, kind of, this is real cloak and dagger stuff. He tells him, like, all right, so remember that time me and you did that thing in that place? Uh, in three days, meet me there. If anybody is spying out or listening, they won't know. Right? He's talking in code. He's like, you remember that eventful day? You know, we almost got in trouble. You know, we killed the neighbor's cat. Um, or whatever they did. We don't even know. You remember that time? Hey, go there. That's going to be our secret space uh, to, to meet. Verse 20, and I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the, uh, the lad, his servant, saying, go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the boy, the arrows are on this, on this side of you, get them. I want you to come out, David, for there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the boy, behold, the arrows are beyond you, you need to run, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you have, and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So, D, so David did just that. David hid in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, uh, the seat by the wall. Is an old uh, is an old uh, uh, warrior's trick, right? Why has he got his back to the wall? Yeah, he's always looking at the door, the exit, or the windows. He he always has a defensive posture. He's not gonna. If you've ever had the privilege of eating lunch with a cop, uh, they're very curious about putting their back to the uh, to the window, right? They want to be able to see the exits. They want to see what's going on. Jonathan's doing, or uh, Saul's doing the same thing. Um, Nevertheless, there he is. And the king sat at his, his seat as usual, the seat by the wall, and Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down, that's Abner as his head general, sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul didn't speak anything that day, for he thought, it's an accident. David's not clean. Surely he is not clean. So, uh, in the, again, in that Jewish culture, any number of things could have made him unclean. Perhaps he had had uh, uh, an intimate evening with his wife, that would have made him ceremonially unclean. Um, perhaps he touched a dead body. Perhaps he killed someone. We, we, he's a warrior after all. There's no telling. Perhaps he's just not uh, ritually pure, and I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to press it. Uh, he'll, I'll see him tomorrow. 
and verse 27. It came about on the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty yet again. So Saul leaned over to Jonathan, his son. He says, why has the son of Jesse not come to the mill either yesterday or today? And Jonathan, putting on his very best Denzel Washington, who is the greatest living male actor, um, said, uh, oh, Dad, I forgot to tell you. Uh, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, uh, let me go since our family has a sacrifice in, in, the, in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. He says, this is Dad's 87th birthday. You've got to, you've got to be here or you're going to be written out of the will. Uh, and my, he says, my brother's commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me go away that I may see my brothers. For this reason... He's not come to the king's table. Um, this is about like, like not going home for Christmas and someone saying, oh, um, yeah, they forgot they had a doctor's appointment they had to be at. That's why they're not at Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. It, it's the worst kind of lie. It's the lie you can see straight through. And Saul sees straight through it. Look at verse 30. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, his son, and he said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Uh, we know what he said, right? Y'all watched enough? Okay. Y'all watched enough TV? Uh, you son of a whatever. Um, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Woo! Dang, Dad. He's like, I wish you'd never been born. I wish you'd never come out of your mother's womb. Well, well, thanks, Dad. That's not hurtful at all, right? Um, so he says some ugly things to, to Jonathan, his son. For as Verse 31, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now therefore sin and bring him to me, for he must surely die. So he turns on Saul and he goes, you are a son of a you piece of garbage. You bring shame to me and your mother. Don't you know what I'm doing is actually for your benefit? You'll never be king as long as David is alive. Is Saul concerned about Jonathan being king? No, he is not. But he, he's manipulative. He's trying to, he's trying to uh, frame the situation. Verse 32, Jonathan just explodes. Um, have y'all, those of you who have adult children, have you ever had a real verbal altercation with your parent? No, none of y'all. You said, I'm still alive, Anna. Uh, um, there, there may be seasons, right, in adulthood where, where hey, you just, as, as two, two adults, you're like, I don't see it the way you do. You're wrong. And your parents are like, no, you're wrong, Jack. And you're like, mm, okay. Uh, Jonathan and his dad are having a screaming argument at the front of the dining hall on this holiday. This is not good, right? It couldn't have get any worse if the family was playing Monopoly on Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> right? Monopoly ruins family get-togethers, and Jonathan and, and Saul are ruining this, this celebration. Um, verse 32, Jonathan said to Saul, his father, he says, Why should David be put to death? What has he done? Why are you so angry? Why do you hate him so much? And so Jonathan just launches into it. And Saul, picking up his spear, right, because it's right there all back to the wall, he says, mm, he's already called his son a son of a you-know-what. He already said, you're a shame to your mama. And Jonathan bows up at him. To this point, Jonathan has only ever really kind of, on paper, pushed back on his dad a couple times. Uh, the first one, I recall, was when Jonathan ate some honey after a battle. His eyes were brightened, and Saul accused him of breaking God's commandments and wanted to kill him in front of the army after Jonathan himself had initiated the first uh, point of contact for the battle and had won, right? Jonathan was the man. Here's the other one. Both times, King Saul tries to kill his oldest son. All right, unbalanced much? Yeah. And he picks up his spear. Look what it says here. Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death, right? 
He's so mad at David, he would he would point a gun and shoot at his at the heir of the throne. He is unhinged, he is untethered, he is angry, and he is he is very, very frustrated that he feels like, okay, well, the heir of the throne, saw, uh, uh, Jonathan, has turned against me to David's side. My own daughter, who was supposed to spy out David's house, who's sleeping in the, in the enemy's bed, what does she do? She loves him. She's turned, she helped him escape. That paranoia, paranoia sets in for Saul and he is getting more and more angry, more and more untethered, more and more uh, into his lunacy. Uh, verse 34, Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he did not eat food on the second day of the new moon. So the, the food hadn't even come out to the table yet. They're still having bread and, and, uh, and, and the water, right? They're still getting their drink order in. And he, he jumps up. He was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Now, it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out in the field for the appointment with David. And he can't, he can't just call out to David, right? There's secret service everywhere. Jonathan can't just ease out by himself. So he goes out with, with, uh, with his young boy, his servant, and this is the guy who goes and gets the arrows. I'm going to go, I'm gonna get, you got to pick up the brass after, you know, range day. Uh, we're going to shoot some arrows, and you got to go get them. Which, by the way, is a brilliant idea. If you ever get, like, I don't have to, I'm just going to shoot. That's, that's cool. You do all the reload. You get all the, the arrows. That's cool. Uh, that's fine. And uh, so he goes out, verse 36, and he said to the, to the boy, Run, find now the arrows which I'm about to shoot. Um, the Bible is often descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay? You understand what I mean by that? It is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's telling you what happened, not that you should go about doing it. Does that make sense? So I say that because um, if you want to be biblical, do not send your kid out and then shoot arrows. Okay? Uh, so again, pre descriptive, not prescriptive. This, uh, that's free for your dollar. Use that however you need to apply that in your spiritual life. Um, so, so anyway... Uh, he said, run, find now the arrow which I'm about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. Parent of the year award right there, right? Um, curious. And when the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? There's the code word. David is hiding in the field behind a rock. And he shoots this arrow out there, and, uh, and the code was, no, 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 come back closer to me. I didn't shoot far enough. Pick up the arrow. That means, David, you're safe. You can come out of your hiding hole. But if I tell you, no, 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 to the boy, go further, that's the cue to David. Run, run fast, don't look back. And so that's what happened. Um, Verse 37, the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, and Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? That's the code for David to run. And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came back to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything, right? There's nothing happening. As far as he's concerned, he's just out there shooting arrows. And um, Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad, and said to him, go, bring them back to the city. He said, so he hands him the bow, he hands him the arrows, um, and says, I want you to go, put them back in the armory, put them in my room, I'll be back just shortly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, stretch, do some yoga poses, because that's the calisthenics I was doing. And uh, he sends the boy off. Verse 41, when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. Uh, this is an act of humility. It's an act of respect. It's an act. It's an act of sheer heartbreak. As he's making his way to Jonathan, he bows because number one, he's the, the crown prince. He has a position. Secondly, that's his best friend. And his best friend 
has just put his life on the line to save his. And he realizes everything about his way of life is going to change. His home is no more. His wife, in very short order, Michael, will be taken from him. He is going to go on the run. He is going to have to hide in holes. He is going to have to turn to the very enemy for the last several years he's been killing the Philistines and start working for them just so he can eat. Everything about his life changes in this one conversation. He knew it was coming. It was kind of a delayed pregnancy. But here in this moment, it gives birth, and that baby is ugly. It is death. It is mayhem. It is destruction. And he comes out and bows three times before Jonathan. And they kissed uh, each other and wept together. Now, uh, we in America, Western civilization, has some, uh, some curious thoughts about this. Um, have you ever been to a European trip? You ever been over Europe? Anybody? Anybody ever been to Latin America? All right. This is especially true of like Puerto Rico, certain parts of the Caribbean. When they greet each other, they kiss each other. But how do they do that? Yeah, they kiss each other on the cheek, right? To this day, in the Middle East, in Africa, if you see two men walking down the street, um, they will be holding hands like this. And they're best buds. They're bros. This is, this is my friend. And they'll be walking down the street holding hands. Men will not hold hands with women. Men will not hold hands with their wives in public. But me and Corey could be walking down the street here holding hands, just swinging around. Hey, how's it doing? I was in Uganda a number of years ago, and uh, my translator's name was Moses. Uh, he was a, a much older gentleman. And uh, um, we went to the question and answer session after the teaching, and uh, he came and stood by me, and he held my hand. And I'm just like, of course, I'm 6'4", and he, Moses is, you know, 5'3", and we're sitting there. He just hold my hand, and they're asking deep theological questions, and I'm trying to process that, but I can't because Moses got my hand like, like we're married or something. Um, the level of relational intimacy in different cultures is different. Um, David and Jonathan are as close as two people can be. Um, there's not a, a width of paper between their, their hopes, dreams, ambitions, and desires. They realize this is the last time likely they'll ever see each other. And um, there, there's a song uh, by a group called the Avet Brothers. Y'all ever heard of the Avet Brothers? Um, I told Terry, the first time I heard the song, and this sounds really morbid, so forgive me if, if, it, if it does. The first time I ever heard the song, I, I pulled up the YouTube, I texted it to Terry, and I said, I want this song played at my funeral. Uh, but the title of the song is No Hard Feelings. And uh, it talks about, it says, there's going to come a time when I, I lay down the keys to my house for the last time. I might not even know it's the last time. There'll be, there'll be a time when I take the rings off my fingers for the last time. There'll be a time when I say goodbye for the last time. There'll be a time when I kiss my wife goodnight, and it's the last time it'll ever happen. And, and the song essentially uh, kind of talks about how when that happens, even if I don't know it's the last time, I want to go from this world to the next with no hard feelings. Right? David and Jonathan are at this point where it's a unique time in, in, in their life and their relationship where they realize this is it. This is it. You may not know the last time you're going to see your best friend. Jonathan and David knew. And this was it. And they weep and they weep and they weep as if they have died already. Look what the text says. They kissed each other. They wept together. But... David wept the more. David, all of his fears and frustrations and passions, he had what I probably would guess is that ugly cry. Y'all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like where like there's been a long, hard season, and you've been holding it all together, 
and then there's this crescendo event and and maybe you don't even do it in front of anybody but your best friend or maybe your spouse or maybe by yourself and you just kind of go into a, a dark room and you kind of bend over at the waist and you just cry and cry and cry and that ugly cry, that's, that's happening here. They're devastated. Verse 42, And Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, Yahweh will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants. I, I do love the way that's phrased. The only thing that will be between us, it won't be hurt feelings, it won't be bitterness, it won't be family, it won't be friends, it won't be money, it won't be property. The only thing between me and you is God himself, and he's going to hold us together. The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went back into the city. And there concludes chapter 20. We'll try to hit 21 and 22 next week. Um, but what we see here is a beautiful picture of the human experience. We tend to look at the Bible through rose-colored glasses, right? Uh, the moral of this story, I don't know if there is a good one. I don't know. I do know this. David is suffering. He's hurt and he's heartbroken. I do know this that those of you that are in here, y'all have either gone through this season of your life, you're in this season of your life, or you'll go through it some type of spiritual, literal, physical hardship. We like to think that if we follow God, our kids won't ever get sick, we'll never lose our job, and things will just go on sweet by and by. But God uses the totality of the experience of life to make us into the men and women of God that we're supposed to be. And we've got to stay on track with whatever God leads us to do, we may do it. And that's a hard picture that we see drawn here. It's a hard reality, uh, but God leads us. As I've told you that story before, I met a sweet young waitress, uh, looked nothing like my stereotype of what a, a good young Christian girl looks like. Short purple hair, nose ring, earrings, all of them. She's taking my order, and I just said, hey, um, what what are you going to do when you grow up? I asked that to a lot of people. What are you going to be when you grow up? She says, I'm going to be a missionary to South America. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, who's paying for that? And she said, I don't know. God's, God's will, God's bill. At some point, we've got to get to this place where David is here now. I have no idea what God's got on the, on the, on the docket for the next six, eight, ten months or years. But let's follow God. Let's do what he does day by day, step by step. Face the realities of the moment. And then move through them with the trust that God has our back. All right? Questions, comments? That's a lot of information. Thoughts, come arounds?